0: I'm Talmage Boston, and welcome to Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past with our country's leading historians and thought leaders. Earlier this week, I cross-examined Doug Brinkley, author of American Moonshot, JFK, and the Great Space Race. That book just came out on April 2nd, 2019, and has already made the New York Times bestseller list. We did the program you're about to hear, sponsored by the Dallas Regional Chamber in front of a live audience on April 16th. Enjoy. So please welcome Doug Brinkley. Thank you. you. Now, Doug, I think most people, when they see an accomplished historian, you've, you've written a number of bestsellers, and you always want to know, why did he pick this subject? So in your introduction, you, you talk about what a space nut you were uh, from the time you were a child. Uh, Doug grew up in a small town in Ohio that was right next to the small town in Ohio where Neil Armstrong was from, a town called Wapakoneta, Ohio. Isn't that a great name for a small town? And so Doug was eight years old. When Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, and as he says in the book, he cried, he cheered like a banshee, uh, and so that got it all started. But Doug, how did your childhood obsession with space drive you to want to write this book? You know, for a certain age, the NASA
1: astronauts, uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo—they were—they were all are all season heroes. I got to know all about them. I bought into the Life magazine profiles and. The um, you know I actually had trading cards like baseball cards of astronauts and NASA plates and glasses um, and so when the big moment came of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin uh, actually go breaking Earth shackles to stand on the moon uh, it was the biggest event of my childhood and as you say growing up with uh, Neil Armstrong kind of a hometown um, favorite in Northwest Ohio. You know, it was like a big moment for me. I became just, I would say, as a different generation, Charles Lindbergh was their hero when he went across the Atlantic in 1927. For me, Armstrong was. In Ohio, we brag about the Wright brothers and John Glenn, and, and, you know, it was just in the air growing up there. But I wanted to tell you that some years later, I wrote a biography of Dean Atchison, Harry Truman's secretary of state, and a biography called Driven Patriot, The Life and Times of James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy and America's first Secretary of Defense. And I got a P.O. box of Neil Armstrong at his farm outside of Cincinnati. And I mailed in my two books with the note that said, I'd like to interview you. Um, You know, I grew up not that far. I'd like to talk to you about your career in a Korean war in space not for a particular book in mind right now, but I would use it at a future book. I got back a polite rejection note from his assistant. Mr. Armstrong will read one of the books you sent him. That's a little precocious ending too. And um, he will um, keep you in mind if something arises, but he doesn't, isn't interacting with the media or any interviewers. So i kind of forgot about that. I, I had the temerity to do that. And uh, about six, seven years later, my telephone rang from NASA, and the director there said, "Well, Neil Armstrong's finally doing an oral history. He's turning 70, and uh, they want, he wants you to be one of the, uh, wants you to come and interview him." I was like, "You're kidding. They remembered that many years later, a young person sending a note like that. So we had it set up, and it was right at um, the time of what unfortunately would be uh, late September, 2001 was my interview. And boom, the 9-11 tragedy. And I thought all airports got closed. There was kind of a shutdown. We didn't know what what was going on. And I knew I'd have to at best get a reschedule. And and, uh, so I called my contact at NASA. And he was a little perplexed. And he said, no, you don't understand. Neil Armstrong never cancels anything. When he commits, he commits. And I said, well, how? He said, he's going to fly his own plane. So I drove. I was in Tulane. I was teaching. I went from Tulane to Houston and drove. And sure enough, I was waiting when Neil Armstrong flew his own little plane, landed at Johnson Space Center, walked out, walked into a room like this, spent a whole afternoon, six hours on tape, about eight hours total with him. And then he got back on the plane and flew home. And it was just an amazing interview for me. And it's really what triggered this book. I realized I knew a lot about NASA, a lot about the space program, and now I'm a professor at Rice University, where John F. Kennedy famously made his September 12, 1962 speech, which you're going to be seeing a lot of on TV, or if you haven't already, the the choosing to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And um, being at Rice, I have a NASA people all around me, and, um, and archives and the like. So it was a, a personal book for me to write this.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great things about this book is it's actually two books in one. It's not only a history of the space program, it's a biography of John F. Kennedy. And you say in your preface that had Kennedy not had a hard-driving father and also not had a brother killed in World War II on an aviation bombing mission, that the moonshot might not have happened. So explain how John F. Kennedy's relationship with his father and his older brother impacted his commitment to the American Moonshot Project.
1: Well, you all probably are aware of Joe Kennedy. He was um, one of the wealthiest men of his day, made of money in all sorts of investment industries, including Hollywood. Uh, But he was a very hard-driven man, uh, particularly wanting to overcome a bias against Catholics. And he browbeat in his boys that you had to be number one, that you had to win, that you had to be in public service. Uh, He was a great father, but a tough father. And um, so the Kennedy boys were instilled with that. When World War II happened, they volunteered. Joe Kennedy Jr. uh, went to Europe and was a a Navy pilot and a great one. And Jack Kennedy went on a uh, got assigned to the south pacific the solomon islands with his famous pt boat which got destroyed and he had to swim to an island and he saved a crew member that he pulled on his back and he both were american war heroes but joe kennedy got asked after he could have come home because he had flown so many combat missions they asked joe kennedy if he wanted to volunteer for operation aphrodite and aphrodite was we didn't have a missile program in the United states during world war ii we had one world-class rocketer dr robert goddard and goddard in the 1920s started putting projectiles up off of a cabbage field in the middle of massachusetts he got written up for disturbing the peace and things with these he got frustrated that people were reining him in and so he moved to new mexico roswell Uh, Where he started, uh, he had his own uh, rocket ranch, Eden Valley, there, and he'd start his experiments out in the desert, which gives our country the White Sands proving grounds of today. But beyond Goddard and FDR, who I write glowingly about, FDR blew it on missile technology. We did nothing with missiles in World War II. That was a big shortcoming. Correctly, Roosevelt put a lot into atomic weapons and the Manhattan Project, and we we were supreme in that. But the Germans were amazing rocketeers. They were controlling missile technology. In fact, the first missile ever, first projectile ever to break 62 miles and leave Earth's pool to go into space was from Werner von Braun, the Nazi rocketeer in the middle of World War II. And von Braun was developing vengeance weapons, V-1, V-2, and V-3s. And these vengeance um, Weapons. The V two was trying to destroy all of London. I mean, they got them going at the end of the war. And so, what the what Operation Aphrodite for Kennedy, Joe Kennedy was. You were going to fly a plane packed with dynamite Torpax, across the English Channel, and it was going to be like a drone where you aimed the plane right at these facilities where we thought were Vengeance um, weapon parts to blow up this this secret Nazi headquarters. So you would eject a parachute right before the plane crashed in, and then you'd have to go on a survivalist mission. Really high risk stuff. He died. He blew up in the in the sky. Um, but John F. Kennedy later would meet Warner Von Braun because we captured him after World War II, brought him here to Texas to Fort Bliss, um, gave him, he was considered a prisoner of peace, and he started working on our missile programs for the U.S. Army jack kennedy and von braun met in 1953 they were they were chosen to pick times person of the year to be judges and they picked Konrad adenauer the new chancellor of west germany but kennedy all ate up a lot of his clock with von braun telling him "Oh, my brother died trying to take out your your vengeance weapons uh, i told him the story of his brother we were trying to take out your ballistic missiles Cut to going to the moon, the Saturn V rocket that brought Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon was built by Warner Von Braun. The moon rocket is the father of the V2 rockets. For the Nazis, it's the same one who built our Saturn rockets that took us to the moon. Uh, And so Von Braun's a a controversial and important figure in this book, uh, which is largely about Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and the politics of space
0: in the 1950s and 60s. Well, as far as Werner von Braun goes, you do detail exactly what he was doing in World War II, and as he led the German military's <coughs> rocketry unit, and you say you describe his conduct with the Nazis, understandably, as amoral, and you said he was deeply compliant in war crimes. So, despite all the good that he did for America's rocketry program, in the context of all the bad that he did with the Nazis, where do you come out on Werner von Braun?
1: Well, uh, there's you know, Dwight Eisenhower never forgave really Werner von Braun because the V two rockets that were being built were built by Jewish slave labor out of the Dora camp, uh, and it was brutal. It was a subcamp of Buchenwald because they had to build a lot of these things under hiding in caves, and the conditions were were beyond miserable. Um, and so for Ike. He knew the World War II in Europe scenario so bad, so much that he never fully forgave von Braun, even though he was glad our government under Operation Paperclip brought over a thousand German scientists and engineers into the United States to work for the US government. Jack Kennedy didn't care about von Braun being a Nazi. Kennedy looked at it as, look, he was a German and he served Germany, I'm American, I served American, we were kids, that's what you did. Um, but And we're 20th century guys, meaning Eisenhower, born in Texas, but he was born in the 19th century, and Churchill was born in the 19th century. So was Khrushchev and de Gaulle, and I could go down the whole list of them all, where they were a new generation born in this 20th century. They were born with the jet age in their childhood, there were Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and and, you know, the space age of tomorrow. And so Kennedy saw it as a generationally, and he never minded Werner von Braun. There is an academic group that are charging von Braun as I speak with war crimes, because they're finding new documentation now that the Soviet Union broke up. His American story is, is asking for forgiveness of a Nazi past, saying Hitler would have killed him if he didn't work for him. Uh, and his Proof for that is that he was arrested by the Gestapo and put in jail because he once, at a meeting, mentioned going to the moon someday instead of staying focused on on building weapons of mass destruction. And so he was he used that as his alibi. He became a kind of born again evangelical Christian in America. now was a naturalized citizen. And in the 50s, we were, West Germany started becoming America's great friend, and he identified closely with the new West German government. And Walt Disney put Warner von Braun on his television shows all the time in the 1950s as, you know, Tomorrowland and the future of space, and here's Dr. Warner von Braun. And uh, so he became a big-time celebrity. He wrote articles for Colliers and books about moon. Nobody did more to stoke the American imagination that the moon and Mars were possible the Werner von Braun. So I call him. I say he's not a sustainable hero. He has a big asterisk next to his name. You've got to look at his whole life. If you're studying NASA history, history of rocket engineering, he you you can't do it without him. He is it. If you're looking at a biography of his whole life, his early chapters are are troublesome uh, because some of the German rocket scientists fled the Nazi regime, instead of staying. But he chose to to take the funding that Hitler
0: provided to continue to R&D his his ballistic missiles. Now, following World War II, and and with von Braun and all of his colleagues come to the United States, and the the space race uh, begins to heat up, and obviously it was very costly, the issue was, is it better for rockets and missiles to be used as weapons uh, or... To explore space. So it's easy for a government to justify the cost of rockets if it's a matter of national defense. It's much more difficult to justify it if it's just talking about exploring space. So the question is, would rocketry ever have gotten to where we put a man on the moon were it not for the fact that those same types of rockets had military capacity? No, we never would have. This is the story
1: of the Cold War and missile development going to the moon. The good news, the nice news, the happy news is that um, we did a nice job of creating NASA in 1958 as a civilian-run space agency. We did not want to militarize space. We were aiming for global prestige, and in the 50s, the whole United Nations was trying to share information about our solar system and the galaxies beyond. Um, And so we engaged in that. It was in the 50s of, of working with other countries with scientists. And we still, scientists share all over the world today. However, the building of our rockets were ballistic missiles for the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And it was a part of the Cold War. You know, from 1945 to 49 is the only time in world history when one country will be known to be a nuclear monopoly. That was us. Uh, By 49, the Soviets detonated a bomb, A-bomb, and we were panicking over that. Also, China turned communistic in 1949 with the revolution. We get a red scare of McCarthyism here in America. And in the Korean War, we, we had the best military aviation in the world by 1950, in my opinion. But our missiles were terrible. Von Braun had not been unleashed yet by the army. He was underfunded, but by 1950, we started saying the new coin of the realm is going to be missiles, and we're going to have to greenlight these German scientists in a whole new way. And what spurred it was Sputnik in 1957, because now the Soviets beat us into space, putting the first satellite in space. It was small. Some people call it a basketball-sized satellite, beep, beep, beeping around the planet. But a panic ensued. You can read the headlines in newspapers that we're losing the Cold War. And guys, when you're saying a satellite, it's just not a fee. Now they can start putting satellites, reconnaissance satellites, weather satellites, global positioning satellites, on and on and on. You know how many satellites are going around the world right, right now out in space. So we, if we were losing in that industry, that means we were losing in technology to Russia. And um, so it's Sputnik 57. NASA gets created in 58 as a response. We create the Mercury 7 astronauts as a media public relations program. We show that here are the future space travelers, these seven men. And um, Kennedy buys into all of that because he's running for president in 1960 and wants to tell Nixon, who he has to run against in 60, the Ike's vice president, you let Sputnik happen on your watch. Um, you know, you're weak against the Soviets we're losing in science there's a education gap there's a missile gap there's a space lag in fact in one of the, the debates of Kennedy Nixon Kennedy said scores real punches on Nixon you can watch him you feel the punch when uh, Kennedy's able to say you Mr. Nixon you know last year you told Khrushchev that America will beat you in is uh, number one in, in kitchen appliances Well, I'm going to take my TV in black and white, but I want to be number one in rocket thrust. And then another one, he said, if you're elected and we continue, I'm afraid if this man's elected President Nixon, Kennedy says, I envision a Soviet flag planted on the moon. I want to see an American flag planted on the moon. You know, in debates, those are those are killer punches. And um, Kennedy wins. His problem is he gets the famous inaugural late January of 1961. And by April, the Soviets put the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin, on Kennedy's watch. He'd been pounding at Ike and Nixon. Now this happens on his watch. And he was desperate. And I write about the book for a response. The big response was, at last, greenlighting Alan Shepard. Mercury astronaut who goes up on May 5th, 1961, 15 <laughs> minutes only, 15 down, but now we put a human in space. And meanwhile, Kennedy now feel, saw the TV ratings of Alan Shepard, everybody. Kennedy's really good on television. I mean, and he, I mean he has that keen, keen TV eye, you know, and media presence and he recognized it's so a ratings finance. I keep putting a Mercury astronaut in, and I get my poll numbers fly up, and you know. Um, and so he bought into it fully. And then the big word for Jack Kennedy is leapfrog. How can we leapfrog the Soviets? I don't want to go astronaut cosmonaut, astronaut cosmonaut. They spacewalk, we spacewalk. You know, how do we go way over them? And that was going to the moon. And there's Werner von Braun saying, "Oh, I could do it." And uh, the technology's there. And um, von Braun had come to the inaugural of Jack Kennedy. Kennedy would have him at the White House. Kennedy would visit him in Huntsville and in Cape Canaveral. And uh, that confidence that our science community thought they could do it, allowed Lyndon Johnson and Jack Kennedy and the real leader of all this, James Webb, the head of NASA, great technocrat manager. They um, pulled it all together, and the Apollo program was off and running. It cost $25 billion. Dollars, which would be about $180 billion
0: in today's money. Well, uh, as you talk about the 1960 election, the Nixon-Kennedy debate, one of the most effective punches was his talk of there being a missile gap. And your book talks about whether, in fact, there was a missile gap to support all the scare tactics used by Kennedy. What's the answer? There was a missile gap. It was we had more
1: missiles than the Soviets, though. Um, we were Eisenhower was not asleep at the wheel. Um, he, we really were. He just didn't believe in the race. Oh, oh President Eisenhower thought the race to the moon was what he called when Jack Kennedy doing that a stunt. And McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor for Jack Kennedy. Uh, had the temerity to tell his boss, you know what? I think this whole moon thing of yours is a grandstanding play. And Kennedy flares up at Bundy and says, Mac, you don't run for president in your 40s like I did unless you have a certain kind of moxie. Um, So people were charging Kennedy with grandstanding and going to the moon. Um, But, you know, it was the, and he knew that we had missile superiority Kennedy in 1960, because he was criticizing this lagging of our technology so much that the CIA invited Kennedy to see all of, uh, in a secure room, Alan Dulles, director of the CIA, showed all of this documentary evidence so Kennedy would know on the campaign trail as the Democratic nominee, uh, we're, we're beating them in, our, in, in satellites. It's not even comparable what our technology is compared to theirs. But Kennedy ignored that briefing because he was scoring political points on the missile gap. And, um, and he later just shrugged it off and said, wow, it's amazing. I got elected and there, the gap went away. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so he, he, um, he decided to make technology. We talk about going to the moon, but he decided to make technology what the new frontier, a heart and soul of it. Probably, I would even say certainly, the right call by Kennedy. You know, he was looking for something big. FDR had done Grand Coulee Dam and Tennessee Valley Authority and more on and on the New Deal. And Eisenhower did the interstate highway system, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Kennedy was looking for that big thing he'd be associated with. And he recognized that whether he liked it or not, it was going to be the space race or missile technology. And so he thought, how can we put money into the economy with tech? And they had a conscious Program to fund the Southwest, Texas being a huge beneficiary, because Senator Robert Kerr of Oklahoma of the Kerr McGee Kerr Petroleum, um, that so Senator Kerr was the head of space appropriations for in the Senate from Oklahoma and Texas. Head of Congress space appropriations was Albert Thomas, Congressman from Houston, and Lyndon wants to bring. The money, pork, whatever you want to call it, into Oklahoma and Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, because Kennedy's Justice Department was having to implement the Brown decision and in integration. and They were having trouble with James Meredith in Mississippi and in Alabama, you all know, in the early 60s. So the strategy, political strategy for Kennedy and Johnson are, let's get, I can tell that old Southern Democratic senator who's angry about civil rights, come on. Um, we're going to put $400 million in the Biloxi. We're giving New Orleans 300000000 Just million. We're not asking to like what our Justice Department's doing. Just don't say anything. And uh, and we're going to take care of your constituents. So you get this Southern strategy. The money gets poured into Florida, Jacksonville, Cocoa Beach, Langley, Hampton, Newport News, Virginia, Brevard, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, uh, all over for going to the moon, the, uh, um, the money is, is spread widely and into Missouri with McDonnell um, aircraft. McDonnell Douglas, um, you know, got a big contracts out of this. Uh, so did North American Aviation out in California. So some of the, the what Kennedy had going for him is the aerospace companies. love Jack Kennedy. Just loved him. That's a bonanza, all of these government contracts. So he had a big corporate sector
0: that wouldn't normally perhaps be Democratic, backing his action. But one of the specific stories that is of interest to us in Texas was how Houston got NASA. And you talk about it was Humble Oil and Refining, which is now ExxonMobil. It was uh, uh, George Brown of Brown and Root. It was Lyndon Johnson. It was Congressman Albert Thomas Give a brief summary of how we got the crown jewel in all of the the space projects, NASA.
1: NASA comes into Houston out of a bid. You know how um, Jeff Bezos just did an Amazon bid for the campus right after Kennedy said on May 25th, 1961, to a joint session of Congress, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade and bringing it back alive. Everybody at NASA said, huh, we have no technology for that. That's impossible But suddenly the space hardware bids came in virtually the next day. Companies were coming in for parts. They had a conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, that James Webb really was uh, ahead of NASA, oversaw who was going to get what contracts and the like. And Houston's bid wins out. Um, It's perfect in many ways due to the climate, due to the ship channel, um, but mainly it had the politics. Kennedy had barely won Texas in 1960, barely with Lyndon on the ticket, and he was going to have to win in 64 if he wanted to stay president. Uh, So giving the money to Massachusetts, um, which put a great bid in, didn't make any sense. So they went with Houston for Manned Space Flight Center, and Houston overnight becomes synonymous with technology in the space age. I mean, the Astros baseball teams born in 1962, the Kennedy's president, the NBA Rockets, Um, And you mentioned Brown and Root. You know, they used to build dams, Brown and Root. Now they're building tech quarters, tech centers, um, NASA facilities under contract from a Houston contractor. In fact, the day before Kennedy died, he was in Houston. And for a gala honoring Congressman Albert Thomas, the head of the Space Committee, and Kennedy slipped up in his speech and he said... I brought such the dude, Albert Thomas, the, the we, America now is sending the biggest payroll in the space. He said, I mean, payload <laughs> and, and being Kennedy was good at, at impro, improvisation. And he said, "Oh, well, uh, and we, it's also the biggest payroll actually. And it all goes here into Houston, Texas, you know, and everybody cheers, you know, and uh, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, people in Texas uh, love Jack Kennedy. He, down in the Houston corridor, because he brought so many jobs and money down there with this, and he um, famously went to my university, Rice, and spoke in front of forty thousand people in the stadium, giving that "choose to go to the moon" speech. And because um, now, even when you, we landed on the moon, Houston is one of the first words uttered. Uh, how do you pay? A, how does a city pay a debt to a president? <laughs> Who's willing to do do that? And San Antonio became the head of space medicine, where which is a much more lively field than I knew. The innovations out of going to the moon of CAT scans and MRI and kidney dialysis machines and, you know, uh, heart defibrillators and all this new medical tech grew out of the NASA investment. I write in the book about some of the spin-off technology that was garnered from that $25 billion investment.
0: Now, another central character in the book is, of course, John Glenn. You say that uh, John Glenn's flight constituted a, quote, Paul Bunyan's step forward to the moon. What was the significance of Glenn's uh, flight and uh, being the first astronaut to circle the, the Earth, the first American astronaut to circle the Earth? He became the real a great American hero, probably the biggest, um,
1: you know, we had in World War II, Audie Murphy and all, but when the World War was going on, it was hard to do the ticker tape parades. Uh, but John Glenn got vetted by America when he um, orbited Earth multiple times. Um, he was a Marine. He was a incredible, they used to call him the clean Marine. He was considered the Boy Scout of the astronauts. He was handsome and smart. He became a goodwill ambassador after um, his Friendship Seven success. His capsule went all over the world, uh, and people would line up for five hours just to look at the little capsule of John Glenn. It was clear that Glenn um, became a kind of figure representing America's capitalist democracy and what people liked about America. Kennedy was framing this as a sports contest between democratic capitalism and uh, communist totalitarianism put it in Cold War terms, and then he would constantly put things in football terms. Even at Rice, in his famous speech, I saw he hand-wrote this in the speech at Rice. Uh, and, um, I, at the last minute, he's giving all these examples. Why do you climb Mount Everest? You know, why, do, why, do, and why, do we, why does Columbus sail the seas kind of thing? And then he says, why does, you know, Rice play Texas in football? Because it's a challenge, you know, and and uh, and but he constantly framed things in this winning, and that's what got him the funding. People are like, and then I like about what Kennedy did. He does it over and over again. He tells the, to bring people in to go on the moon. He say it's I, this is really I got to tell you, it's really expensive, guys. Okay, he would always say that. They he said like, it'll cost you fifty cents a week to help get a man to the moon, uh, and thank you. But we couldn't do it if you didn't do it. But he was pretty blunt about the expenses. He was never backpedaling that. And I think because of that, people felt, okay, uh, yeah, it's expensive. I'll, I'll do it. I'll pay the 50 cents a week. Let's go. Uh, and that's leadership. And uh, Kennedy, you know, the space thing, had great. Uh, it was great presidential leadership. And even if you don't like John F. Kennedy for whatever reasons, I would... Vigorously disagree with somebody, anybody who would tell me that he's not a great salesman. <laughs> Kennedy could sell space, boy. I mean, he was really good at it, not just the way he talked about it and the language and the framing of it. And he put it in pioneer and trailblazing and football rivalry terms. And he just sold it to people that you said, yeah, let's go. I'll, we'll pay it. Let's go to the moon. And um, that
0: that's a, a rare presidential leadership when you get somebody who can do that. In terms of the cost, you you describe it in great detail in the book, and by the mid to late 60s, it was as much as 5% of the federal budget went to the space and the moonshot. So, Doug, looking back, give us your best summary of the return on that investment. Yeah, what what a lot of
1: the, the engineers at NASA used to say is, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. <laughs> um And it's true today. I mean, when uh, Vice President Pence went to Huntsville, which is you know for the because of the von Braun legacy and all, a couple weeks ago, and said we're going to go back to the moon in four or five years, President Trump's talking about a space force to compete with Army, Navy, Air Force, and all of this. Where's the money? It's easy to say we're going to Mars, but you got to fund those things, and it's very, very expensive. And um, now, when NASA's budget is a third of 1%. So that's not 5%, <laughs> meaning we're not there yet that we want ready for a giant collective space of thing like we were in the 1960s. We might be. It might be that China going back to the moon gets us going. Um, there. I think we could go back to the moon in four or five years. Uh, if, this time, we need a woman astronaut. There's still not been a woman on the moon, and if America accomplished that, be exciting. Edward R. Murrow, the great CBS broadcaster, told Kennedy, we need to put a person of color in space because most of the world are white men. And uh, if we put a person of color in, we'd be cheered in Egypt and in India and South Africa and beyond. And alas, we did not do that with NASA in the 1960s with Apollo. Uh, but today women are in space. I mean, Sally Ride went up in 1983. We have women at the International Space Station and women on shuttles. And uh, it's a great field for women working into rocketry and space. And, uh, and you know, the the gender and race barrier is gone now in uh, with NASA and privatization of, of space, which is happening now with uh, Blue Origin of Jeff Bezos and Musk and Branson and you know, there's a dozen companies trying to do uh, privatization of space efforts. Remember, when we say space, Mar- going to Mars and Moon is the icing on the cake. It's really about getting more satellites up, more more uh, more practical uses of the space environment. But to get funding, you need to give people something big that they're funding. Um, and that's where they, What's the next move in space exploration will matter. But uh, the spin-off technology... Is from Apollo's large uh, GPS and anti-icing devices, and you know, on and on. Tang and Velcro were not NASA products. Um, contrary to myth, um, they used Tang. Velcro was created in, for Switzerland in World War II, where a guy had dogs that would go on Alpine hikes and get burrs in it. He created a Velcro to rip the burrs off the dogs. NASA did adaptation of Velcro, and it got popularized. So there are many adaptation of products, but there's many, particularly with computers that that NASA was the progenitor of. There's a direct
0: link. NASA, 1960s, leads to Silicon Valley, 1970s. Well, one return on the investment that I hadn't thought about until I read your book was how it impacted the curriculum at America's colleges and universities. Yeah, 1960,
1: no computer science classes at universities. By 1963, they're ubiquitous. The computer age was born. Now, this isn't because of Jack Kennedy, per se, although he was a salesperson of this. It was because the microtransistor chip was created in the late 1950s. Also, radar had been developed in World War II. And these are tool and anti-icing things. Um, And these were tools to be used, but computers, being a computer specialist becomes a rage in the early 60s with NASA as kind of an engine of the computer revolution that now is just part of our daily, we're all carrying one with us right now. Um, it's become part of the American landscape.
0: Well, I want to close. You've, you've all got your copy of this book, and, and I've read many of Doug's book. I happen to think this is the best. It's a it's a delightful read. It's a fast read. And the way he closes it I think puts a perfect wrap on this subject. So I'm going to ask Doug to read Uh, the last two paragraphs uh, of his book, which I think will be a great way to conclude the program. All right. I have my reading assignment here for him. All
1: right. The last. NASA had beaten by five months President Kennedy's pledge to put a man on the moon by the decade's end. After more than eight days in space, the Apollo astronauts splashed into the Pacific at Mission Control in Houston. A sentence from JFK's May 25th, 1961, special message to Congress flashed on the large headquarters screen. I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. An Apollo 11 logo also appeared on the NASA screen, offering the greatest honor of John F. Kennedy's public career. Task accomplished. July 1969. At around that time, an unknown citizen had left a lovely bouquet of flowers on Kennedy's Arlington grave with a thoughtful card that read simply, Mr. President, the eagle has landed.
0: How about them apples? Before we, uh, depart, uh, I want to do a shout-out to Interabang Books. I know many of you have been there. Uh, Nancy Perot is the is the owner, and, and they support authors better than any other bookstore. Father's Day isn't far away. Uh, there are books for sale in addition to one you got for attending. So I encourage you to support Doug and Interabang by considering buying additional copies of the book. They'll make a great present, and they're just going to stick around and sign his, uh, all of your books as well as any that you purchase. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Doug Brinkley is a great friend and a joy to interview. We've done many programs in the past. I'll leave you with a quote from John F. Kennedy himself from his famous 1962 speech at Rice Stadium in Houston, a speech that I call the Gettysburg Address of America's space program in the 1960s. Quote, we choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we're unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Close quote. You can find Doug Brinkley's book, American Moonshot, at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you catch all my podcasts on the website of the Washington Independent Review of Books, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, remember the words of my great friend Bobby Bregan, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmage Boston of the Shackleford Law Firm in Dallas. Thanks for listening.